Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about the neurobiology of rituals and how rituals can support peace-building processes by promoting trust-building, interconnectedness, and social bonding. Our guest is Dr. Beatrice Polignier. She bridges the fields of political science, peace-building, and neuroscience in her experience as an academic, as a human rights and peace-building practitioner, and in her training and ongoing practice as a shamanic healer and mindfulness meditation teacher. Collaborating with neuropsychologists and integrating the results of ongoing research into her healing work. She has over 30 years of field experience in conflict areas, including in Central and South America, Haiti, Africa, Asia, the Balkans, and the Middle East. Welcome, Beatrice, to the Think Peace podcast. Thank you, Colette. Really honored to be here. I'm so excited to get started. Could you give us a little bit of background? You've done a lot of work over the years as a peace builder, working in many countries affected by violent conflict and war. I know you spent quite a bit of time in Haiti. And then from that peace building work, you became engaged more squarely at the nexus of peace building and neuroscience. Could you talk a little bit about how that happened and then a little bit about Peace Rewire, which was something that you um, had been involved in? Yes, sure. So, you know, what prompted me to work in, in, in peace building in the first place was my own story and my own violent childhood and, and uh, trying to understand and transform from inside out. Um, so very early on, as you said, I work in, in countries where further was a widespread political violence and then war. And what, what always fascinated me and was very linked to my, my childhood questions, so to speak, where one, they, what I always call the intangible dimensions of peace building. So the, what's inside even the institutions and the meaning of things, how people try to make sense of what's happening to them, the impact of traumas, individual and collective. And, and always, you know, uh, stressed by mostly the ignorance of all those dimensions by outside interventions. So how superficial sometimes the work remain, including in, in training. And while I was doing that, I was trying to also see what were the resources that people were using, in particular to address those intangible dimensions. And that's how I, I worked a lot with spiritual and traditional healers, you know, since the beginning, you know, since... My, my very first very first country I work on uh, was in was in Peru during the war with El Sandero Luminoso, so it was the mid eighties. The last point was the articulation between individual and collective dimensions, uh, also badly addressed by outsiders. You know how those two, and I'm mentioning that because that's one of the, the important thing with, you know, how I got interested in pushing forward the envelope with. Um, with neuroscience and what we, we know from neuroscience. Uh, so that has been the core of my work as an activist, a practitioner, a researcher, a trainer, etc., to really support an individuals and communities locally in their specific context in leveraging their resources. Uh, so engaging them where they were with very nuanced, diverse, culturally embedded practices. Then I burn out big time. And I'm mentioning that because it reopened key burning questions of my childhood that really were where the, this understanding of neuroscience and the brain plasticity came in. One was how little we have evolved as human beings. Yet we are getting a better, we, I, I could read and see we were getting a better understanding of what's happening in our brain, but what are we doing with that? You know, we have this, there is, we, we, we start to understand better that we make, can make conscience change, choose peace, pursue kindness, self-reflection, 
Um, so can we transform at the deeper level? Is, is there something there that we are not looking at? And the other thing was the spiritual dimensions of my, of my own life. I started practicing as a shamanic healer and spiritual mentor. I won't go too far into that, but, but that, that has be at the core. You mentioned Peace Rewire, which was originally called Reimagining, um, Rewiring the Brain for Peace was had that 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 component so i started to follow more closely the emerging development in neuroscience marrying what i could see with my work with one-on-one patients and also with my work with groups and communities because at the time i worked a lot in the middle east in libya in syria or with syrians i should say we could not go in but we're working at the border and again what struck me was one Yes, we understand better, but at the same time, we know still know little about our brain, and and there are a lot of questions that are interesting from a peace building perspective that we don't know about. And you know, our dear friend Jeremy, who who passed, it would be a year and a half ago, always said we know more about subatomic particle structures of the surface of Mars than we do about our own brain, and yet. This is a set of seat of our memories, our emotions, our behavior. So if we if we want to cure violent behaviors, or if we want to build peace, we we have to start investing in that. And and I was, you know, kind of marrying him by saying, yeah, and if we want to go deeper into sustainable peace beyond this superficial shift in attitudes or belief systems we have to look more at how um, the human brain could enable this deeper transformation by laying new association to be formed between those internal states, our behaviors and changes in the, in the, in the environment. So this very embodied approach of cognition and this transformation could harness on a number of cultural practices. And I was reading also, you know, that's when the, the research around mindfulness meditation and yoga in particular in the West, as practice in the West, was coming out. And, and I was like, well, that's interesting, but there are more practices and different practices in the world. And I could witness some organizations starting to, and hear also from colleagues, for instance, from Syria, in the refugee camp saying, you know, there are people who come and teach us how to meditate or practice yoga where we are Muslim, we have our prayers. And I was starting to see how this, this interesting research again was translated into very dogmatic, so to speak, approach instead of looking, oh, how can we look at that and look at what are the resources that people already use the other aspect when working with researcher and, and going to meetings with people who were doing that type of research around meditation and yoga, for instance, it was relatively self-centered in the sense of understanding, you know, the, the person and the inner peace and not a lot uh, connecting that inner peace with an agenda for social justice and peace. So connecting the inner and outer piece. <laughs> no, I, I had just a couple of follow-up questions. Yes. You mentioned Jeremy and you talked about your work, your work having born of um, difficulties and pain through your personal experiences and, and then that bringing you into, into work to better understand it as well as to try to in some way make a, you know, a, a difference in, in, mm -hmm and change within yourself and within the collective. And Jeremy, um, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Jeremy and who he is? So Jeremy Richman is a neuroscientist. He started in the pharmacology industry and then moved to different topics. And his daughter was, Aviel, was killed at Sandy Hook uh, elementary school in the, in the massacre that happened there. Uh, I don't even remember the dates, but a few years ago, it was a very dramatic event. And of course, for his family, it was, it was awful. Uh, she was six or seven at the time. 
So immediately his wife and he and a number of friends creating the Aviel Foundation, he quit his job and he dedicated his life to trying to understand and, and uh, support research, educate, lobby also, but around mental health and how to transform violence and how to address violence and how to prevent violence by understanding better what's happening in, in, in the brain. And we met, um, I don't even remember when, but it was um, several years ago. And we, uh, I was already working with the Alliance for Peace Building in, in thinking and, and you in thinking about the Rewind the Brain project. And we invited him to speak and, and he was immediately on board, wanted to participate and ended up co-directing the project with me and unfortunately took his own life, which shows, you know, the deep, deep, deep impact of traumas. And, and even for someone who was so astute and, and um, aware of brain disease and, and, and the need, you know, the limitations of the toll of, of what trauma has. But, you know, we, we work with many to keep his legacy and, and continue the, the promise of, uh, um, yeah, it's still very painful for many of us. No, I, I can imagine. And it was such a shock and a tragedy and so much grief around that, you know, yeah. like, as, you, as you know, we all work together through different projects. And, and I yeah. think it was just you know, very difficult on so many months. So I just wanted to raise that and to honor him. Yeah, honor his legacy, absolutely. And that his work and the importance that he brought to trying to prevent violence and understanding violence and understanding what drives it. And with the hope that by better understanding it, there could be ways that we as humans could could change the course. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to talk about rituals uh, later. I know you want to talk about that. So I was writing this, this research with him when he took his own life. What's interesting is that, you know, from the outset, he said, you know, I'm not a believer, I'm not into spirituality, etc. But he was very generally interested in understanding how those resources and what people were doing in their own cultures could help. It was really interesting in digging. He really believed in one of the research, you know, he wanted to, to support, for instance, was the place of values in the brain and, and what role values played. And one of the things we work a lot on was in high stress, because we know that people function with, um, I know you have interviewed a, a number of people who work with trauma. Um, with trauma, you have this, ongoing stress happening. But we know with working with people in war zones or in areas where there have been genocide massacres, where there is ongoing violence. So in, in our neighbor in some of the neighborhoods in many countries in many cities in the world where the stress is still there. You know, and today with COVID, we are in an area of COVID, you know, a lot of people are in constant stress. And in that constant stress you have moment of higher stress. So the thing is how people can access, and I can talk later a little bit about more about what we were trying to explore with ritual is how people even in higher stress can still access, can still have enough of calm to access, I'm saying it in non-scientific terms, but access their own values. In other words, the value of another human being or, or what is called the, um, the theory of the mind. So the, the, the consciousness of, of another one of, of the environment around you and not go on automatic response and on survival. That's where I've always said, we have not evolved. We are like the, the humans in the caves. Oh, there is a lion, I'm, 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 I'm going, it's a lion on me. And I want to um, bring together a couple things that you you mentioned, and then talk a little bit more about ritual and talk a little bit 
about the chapter that you wrote mm -hmm. um, with Jeremy and with two other colleagues. And I wanna preface it with a, a few statements you made earlier. One is the um, work that you had done in different countries and observing and understanding and learning from those you worked with about existing healing practices or existing yes. mm -hmm. ways of managing stress or or trauma or things that happened and then also as you were working you know you and I both had worked in Libya and you had come out to a workshop in a dialogue that we were doing and you were integrating within this dialogue process an element of what we could say, you know, trauma awareness or, or trauma support in a way so that a traditional peace building project had this dimension, but mm -hmm. it was tailored within our Libyan colleagues yeah. and directed by them. And then the last piece is looking at how you talked a little bit about things like spirituality or these things. Sometimes people say that's separate. Hey, we got this neuroscience thing. We got the body, the science, that spirituality stuff is not connected. So could you talk a little bit? I know in the chapter that you developed for the project that we had worked on with, with Jeremy and colleagues, you were tying together these experiences, this that you had had and witnessed and learned from people. And then you married that peace building with the neuroscience and focused mm -hmm. on ritual. I'd love to hear how all that came together and what yeah. you were learning and some yeah. practical things that came out of that that could be useful for peace yeah. So uh, maybe a, a number of things. One is maybe to preface, there is always a discussion about, oh, but not re all rituals are good or those things are not necessarily good or not, not necessarily professional, etc. For me, looking at what people do is not saying it's good or it's bad, okay? It's just a number of things. One, it's what people do. You know, it's the same when I work one-on-one -on -one with patients. It's instead of telling someone, oh, you have to meditate, for instance, for 45 minutes every morning because it's going to be good for you. It may not happen. It may happen for two days and then they go off the wagon. It's looking at, okay, how do you start your day, you know, for someone who really needs support to start their day. I did that with the client yesterday, with one of my patients. It's what, so what, depending on what they need, what do you do? You know, what do you do usually? What bring you joy? What bring you peace? What, whatever it is. Looking at what they do and, and, and building on that because that's what they will do. And that what resonates, that what makes sense for them, that's what they are going to continue to do. It's there, okay? The main peace builders are the people themselves, if we go back to peace building. They are the main peace builders. They are the first responders. You know, in, in natural disasters, you talk about Haiti. In natural disasters, the first responders are the people themselves. So what do they do? And you build on that and you look at that and you work with them with, you know, what what can be done, being very aware, and there are guidelines, there are very clear guidelines out there into how to assess, making sure that, for instance, in terms of power relationships, in terms of abuse, a number of things to make sure that you don't reinforce things that are abusive or, or that are going to control people. And so it's, it's really quite simple. So this is COVID. So here you have in this period some little beings popping up. So Anaya is, is, is very good with rituals and things like that. And, and that has happened a lot also. So that I wanted to say that because it's, it's really important and, and there is a lot of misconception around that. The other thing I wanted to say is that, again, you know, I think most neuroscientists now, a, a lot of them at, uh, at least say, you know, the brain has to be looked at holistically. So we understand any behavior as part of a network comprised of three elements, the nervous system. And we know the nervous system is not only in the brain, right? It's in the whole body, but the nervous system, the body, the rest of the body. So it's chemical also, and it's environment which means the society, the culture, nature, the family networks, everything. So we look, look at the whole. 
So when we look at rituals, when we look at practices that human beings from the beginning of human existence have been developing and use, whether they are spiritual, secular too, are important, they are used, and we have ethnographic research showing us that they played an important role. For instance, you know, when I worked in the mid-90s in Mozambique, in Mozambique, most of the reintegration of children was made by people themselves. And we have had ethnographic research showing how it was much more impactful than any outside organization could have, could have done. We have ethnographic research on process, similar processes that were done to reintegrate soldiers in Sierra Leone. We have a number of things. So the point is to look at, and what we did with this chapter you mentioned and with this research, uh, was to look at existing research around rituals. And you mentioned two colleagues who step in with whom we have worked with Peace Warrior who step in uh, when um, uh, Jeremy passed and, and, and they knew Jeremy and, and, and we were all working together. We have one is Matt Rosano, who I think you have interviewed for this series too, who is amazing evolutionary psychologist and who has worked a lot on rituals. So he's like my reference on, on rituals to a certain extent. And the other is uh, Dara Garimani, who is, uh, who is a neuroscientist and uh, work in, is based in, in California. So it was looking at all the research we had accumulated and, and seeing at what are the different functions or different mechanism that we can identify that research shows and where do we need to dive more? So uh, do you want me to dive into that now? Yeah, that would be great. And then I would love to follow what you might be doing when you, when you talk about the chapter and the research. What are some practical things that peace builders or people who are wanting to support peace building efforts or reconciliation efforts, what are some really important things, um, you touched upon them all already, but really important things that are, are need, they need to consider before engaging. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the, the research findings that you, you and your, you were talking about in the chapter. So what does uh, existing research shows us? So I, I'm going to distinguish what is the individual and what is the collective, because that, that's one of the challenges. But as you know, I love challenges. It's, it's the brain is individual, but in peace building and in a lot of things, we are interested with the collective also. So that, that connection is, and that's where rituals have always fascinated me, potentially. So first thing individually is existing research shows the role of rituals in supporting the regulation of emotions, skirting cognitive control, and refining explicit attentional and memory processes. In, in among other things, the rituals focus attention on a selected behavior or a sensory signal at the exclusion of other signals. So it's, it's how people focus on one thing or two things at the time. And this is considered an important dimension for then the inhibition of prepotent defensive uh, defenses, behaviors, or responses. So in, into increasing the, or supporting the self-mastery, which is, which is important. So this control about reaction and reactive responses. So the more you practice, the more you are able then to, to have this space and, and, and the research, uh, there are different details and different components, but the research speaks, for instance, about creating the space in the brain so you have that pause be before having this defensive response, but it has also, and for reconciliation processes or transitional justice processes, for instance, it's important, it's the transformation of memory and the negative emotional affect also. Again, in that repetition, because the, the rituals usually are considered as helping freeing up working memory capacity. So there is this, this natural, it's like, in non-scientific terms, you could say it's a natural reorganizing and breathing space between the memories. You, I really, the point you made about 
there are two categories. One, you talked about almost a pause in between a reactive response and the reactive could be an emotion. It could be a physical reaction. It could, you know, ultimately lead to perhaps a violent response, very, or, or destructive type response. At the same time, you talked about memory and transitional justice and reconciliation efforts. And you and I have worked for many years in different processes around reconciliation, transitional justice. And I'm very intrigued because of the, as, as we've experienced, that memory seems to have a life a lifespan of, I remember there was Lord Alterdice who had worked on the Northern Ireland peace process and he was a psychiatrist and Max Hernandez who had worked in the Peru context, both of them mentioned something about the past is in the present. It was as if the memories were frozen and were still in the present, causing certain reactions and certain responses that inhibited reconciliation and transitional justice or peace building efforts. So could you just drill a little bit down into what you're talking about there and how ritual interacts and, and perhaps could support more constructive reconciliation or transitional justice processes? So the, a good example is a series of rituals that a foundation in Colombia called the Fundacion uh, Fundacion para la Reconciliación has been, has been doing. And, and, and by the way, I have done, it, it's a it, the mechanism is slightly different, but I've done in the past similar type of work with um, the power of theater, for instance, where you have some, you can have some ritualized messages, gestures in, in theater and, and uh, popular theater or theater uh, for reconciliation. And so it, I can give example. So with that Colombian-based non-for-profit organization, they do some work that center around forgiveness, but the way they conceive forgiveness is a lot around transforming memories. And they work with both perpetrators and victims in, in, in communities. So you have a groups, group work and they work you know, for weeks and months together. And the practices are based both on traditional rituals present in the culture, in the Colombian culture with some, you have some Christian rituals that have symbolized the transformation. So for instance, you have a whole ritual called uh, going from darkness to light that symbolize the possibility of transforming rage and pain. And another ritual use water symbolizing the clearing of the past or so the liberation and the desire to move forward. What they do is, is the work of giving new meaning to people's memories. That's, that's what they say, that working on the meaning of the memories and saying, Forgiveness in that context, and again, they take forgiveness not so much in a Christian sense or in the value sense, but in terms of we transform, we don't change the past, but it changes the present and the future. So we look at the memories, we give them meaning. It's acknowledged by the author and it's transformed. And, and by the way, I've witnessed that in Burundi. I mean, that probably one of the countries where I have such vivid memories of some work I did for weeks there with a local psychologist. And it was coupled with theater work, but we were working with groups after there had been a, a theater representation. I will not go into detail, but it was a very fascinating work. And I have witnessed that at the time, I didn't know what I was doing and what we were doing. But retrospectively, I, I'm like, yeah, that's what's happening. How the memories were worked with, but because it's ritualized, you have the symbolic dimension, you have this attention. There are other components that will come to the safety, the predictability, because you do think that people know about gestures that everybody in the culture understand. So it's safe. It's safe to be in the same room as the perpetrator. And, and the memory is being, is being transformed. Not in the sense that it has not happened, but in the sense of, okay, we choose to give it, to, to work with that story so we can move, we can be differently with it in the present. And what are we going to do with it in the future? 
which might mean, you know, the transformation might mean, um, you know, a monument or, or, or a gesture that the community together is going to do about that memory or honoring what has happened. Or there are different things that, that may happen around that, but this is a transformation that happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And when you're talking about ritual, you've referenced a number of examples of what might be defined, quote, as ritual and rituals around art of movement. It might be have a dance element or a theatrical element. You've talked about prayer. Could you talk a little bit of what you've experienced either through research or in practice? What other types of things that we may not think about as being ritual? but is a ritual in a way that, as you mentioned, has an impact from a neuroscience standpoint on our memory processing, on our ability to have that space in between before reaction and, and other different ways that we engage in relationship with each other or in communities. So the, I just want to, to go back to one thing, which is the role of mind-body connections. Mm -hmm. uh, each time there is a mind-body connections, it's, uh, which is present in many rituals around the world, uh, it's really important uh, from a neurobiological perspective because it plays an important role in engaging and regulating the autonomic nervous system. So indeed, dancing, singing, chanting, using percussive instruments is is really important so that's one of the things we want to look for and for instance i mentioned you know the kind of aberration of bringing yoga into refugee camps where you had muslim people who do dhikr for instance dhikr is a traditional prayer and you have movements of the body and the head even in the muslim traditional prayer you have it it involves a lot of movement the head, but the whole body. So maybe I should go back to the definition of, of ritual. So the way we, we look at is, is really ritual. Now you can, because there are specific advantages of ritual themselves. Now you, you can, and, and as Matt Rosanna would say, there is a spectrum. So you can expand indeed to theater and things like that. I will go back to some dimensions, for instance, with synchronicity, which is a very fascinating aspect of that we have dived in that you want to look for. If you have theater, being a spectator is not necessarily enough unless there is an engagement of people that is somewhat ritualized. The way we understand ritual, and I'm looking at my notes here, I apologize, but to, to, to make sure I'm using definition that Matro Sano graphed. Uh, and I think because it's really, it's really nicely done and, and really clear, it refers to a stereotyped and generally invariantly sequenced pattern of behaviors that are both meaningful to the participant and designed to send a message to the other participant, singular or plural, when the ritual is collective. All participants in the rituals understand what they are doing, hence the variety of scripted, ceremonial, symbolic activities that happen in a certain sequence. And they can be considered on the spectrum, as I mentioned. So on one side of the spectrum, they are more focused, more predictable, which means they are more ritualized. On the other side, it's more spontaneous. But they are understood and they are understood to have both bottom up, so attention by seeing top down meaning making aspects. So the emotion, the behavior, the attention, the meaning making are at the core from a psychological viewpoint. And of course, as I mentioned, there are other dimensions with the when we dive in with neuroscience, but that that's the definition. So you may have practices that are important that are not necessarily ritualized. Again, what's interesting is, is there is a, a, a ritualized aspect. You bring something else. So example, and that, that will tap into other aspects that for the collective, for instance, are important. Two examples that I think I mentioned in the chapter. One 
that tap in another dimension, which is the safety of the space. So one thing that actually Anaya likes to do is, is creating the safe space. So the way she does it, marrying what, what I do is calling the directions and the four elements. There are other ways to do it. And both in Libya and working with Syrians, for instance, each time we were working in groups and we'll do it. And, and very simply, I had brought stones and, and they, in both cultures, they reacted a lot to that. And I ended up leaving the stone there because stones have a very specific meaning and, and we talk about that. It's creating a safe space. So it, it was very simple. We would not even, you know, make a big deal out of it. In Libya, for instance, it was not necessarily done in front of everybody. Each time it was a different person doing it. But they knew that, that it was there. When there were focus group with other people coming, sometimes they would ask what was happening. But there was this time, you know, when people get, get situated where the safe space was created, which is, was really important because at the time we could hear fires, you know, weapons outside. So it was really creating the safe space in the middle of really not a safe space for people talking about trauma. But it played, it was super important for people. Another example is um, an example that Mark Gopin, who is um, someone who, who has worked a lot on religion and peace building, shared with us about what he did one day working with Palestinian and, and Israeli and with bringing figs and sharing the figs uh, from Jerusalem and, and explaining what it means to him and, and having them. And every person, as they share those figs, starting sharing something about themselves while eating the figs. So it's, 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 it becomes ritualized in that case. It has become, then it started becoming ritualized around something that everybody was resonating with. Exactly. And what you're really, you know, you're talking about, which can be very powerful, is sometimes, especially in Western cultures or certain cultures, there's the tendency to just get down to business. You have a meeting, you sit down, you start talking. And I think both you and I have experienced having lived in, you know, many different cultures, that just is not effective. And then, as you mentioned, as you start to learn more about the neurobiology and how the human system works, you start to understand, well, but of course, you know, that you talked about the notion of safety and there's a relation between individuals. And so what's interesting, I think, is to a certain degree or a large degree, you're really talking about looking at what already exists and the strengths mm -hmm. of that. And and honoring and building on that, which is what you talked about before. So I'm curious, as I was just mentioning, sometimes that can be challenging when in certain environments, there may not be a, a ritual or rituals have long gone been not valued. And there's a premium put on fast, fast, busy, busy. Yet we know that fast, fast, busy, busy is counterproductive to peace building and doing the foundational work that is needed to build relationships to get to peace. So what has been your experience working in cultures where there may not be as available or used um, rituals that could be helpful to- So there are always rituals. I go back to the definition. I mean, rituals doesn't mean it's traditional. I mean, what is traditional usually has been reinvented. So it's not that you go and you say, oh, what was done in the past? And you go back to history and it may not longer be the case. I mean, it, it, was, it was the situation in Burundi, for instance, where people would, would, would try to go back to, there are, there are rituals with traditional drummings, but those that been used, those, in part of those traditional drummings and the role of those groups, at, uh, the name, pardon me, escape me now, was no longer there, but something were still there. Or in Haiti, when you go with the voodoo and, and the way it has been used and misused, if you, you go back to the definition, it, it's, you know, there is a spectrum and you don't try, so you don't like to go back to things that people no longer use. 
Rituals doesn't mean traditional in some in the sense of something from the past. It means again, it's it's a certain sequence of things and gestures that people are going to recognize or identify with. So it's it's in a dialogue, it's in this dialogic exchange that you identify and being there and yes, taking the time in advance and when you are there. Uh, but taking the time, it doesn't take necessarily very long, but just asking, what do you do? What what will make you feel safe or what is safety? And 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 sometimes making up something with the people that is going to help them. You know, what would make you safe now? What is safety for you? When it's not even safe to ask that question or you don't want to trigger a trauma, you work with your brokers. So your brokers are very important. Your brokers are your colleagues with whom you work. And that should be, you know, understanding the role of brokers, how you select your brokers, how you work with your partners should be the basics of what a peace builder learn how to do. And that's a very important feature because I think sometimes there's this nostalgia for something in the past and that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever ritual in the past if we look at that way is even safe or that's what might help a group so i'm really i'm curious in the last few moments we have if you were to provide certain general principles that you've learned through the research and practice that someone who's interesting in exploring the role of rituals might consider I think the first one that you just mentioned, I'll just start off there and then turn it over to you. It's really something you've mentioned throughout this conversation, starting with where the person or the group is now and asking that critical question, what would be helpful? Yeah. Instead of assuming something or that there's some nostalgic past, if we just find it, we'll bring it. And and that there's certain things to be careful of. So if you could just kind of recap um, recap what you know guidance or suggestions you might make to somebody who might be interested in exploring this a little bit more some caveats and some things yeah so there is that and what do you need now and that means also usually i I do a lot of work around words also because words in different language have different connotations and 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 you know in the prep work you know thinking for instance in burundi the work we did or in with syrians and libyan you know working of the difference iteration of the words in the local language and one thing so, so making sure that that you are going to do things that are going to allow people to to feel safe uh, and again there is a lot of things around safety and around why safety is important and, and one aspect i didn't mention which is predictability that that the importance in rituals too is that people understand we do that I know what it means, I know what comes next. Because the predictability, the brain needs a certain level of predictability. Then the brain lacks novelty because that, you know, that you have a, a release of a dopamine and you have a number of things that are useful. But to function in particular in high stress environment, it needs a level of predictability. That's where the ritualization of what we do is important, which might mean that if you meet with people for a week or if you see people regularly having creating those little rituals or those little gestures are important i you know i'm going to give a very current example i see for my kid online now for school the ritual that the teacher does every single morning and at the end of single day they do the same three gestures that's super important for the kids and they know it's going to happen. If she does know it, my kid is the first one to say, you forgot. Because <laughs> that means we are here together. Or that means we had a good time together and we're ready to, go to meet again tomorrow. And those are important aspects. Self-care, self-regulation, super, super important for yourself, for your team, for your colleagues, for people. So everything that allows that self-regulation is, is really important. Again, what we didn't work on, uh, talk much about two very important aspects is how you tap and how ritual can help you tap into 
not conscious biases, but unconscious biases. So what, how ritual can create the space so you can go into what is unconscious, what we know is the most important to transform in, in, in the beliefs, in the behaviors. And we know with violence, there is a lot. And with trauma, there is a lot that belongs to the unconscious. That, that's something you want to pay attention to. And everything, and that's more exploratory, but there is a lot that is coming up about synchronicity and synchronistic activity. Super important for groups, but also for intergroups activities. So anything that allow, and that can be, you can, you know, so marching in step, chanting, dancing, doing movements together, or doing something that is at the same time, we know that it creates things biologically because we have research now that shows that. Um, and we know that it can expand even across groups. And in particular, when there are strong biases, it can really expand the capacity, what they call the theory of the mind. Uh, that is the capacity to see the others or to envision beyond you know, what's immediately in front of you. So the events or, or your perception of the other. So there are a lot of things. And for that, getting, you know, learning a little bit more about what, what neuroscience is showing and, and, and listening and being able also to listen to what you have been doing wrong, you know, and, and learning and learning with people again, you know, and taking seriously the knowledge of everybody. So the knowledge of people who are from a very different discipline and the people who are you are working with, your colleagues and, and the, the primary peace builders, who are the people you work with, uh, individuals and collective, and and challenging your own assumptions and uh, acknowledging where, where you were wrong and recognizing and, and having the care, you know, the safe care and the care for the people. You know, my style has always been, and 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 I understand it's not for everybody, and it's not, and you have to have a strong ethics in everything you do. But for me, part of the ethic is the compassion and the active compassion. And I, when I go in, when I go in the same way I care for the patients with whom I work one-on-one, -on -one, I've always cared a lot for the people I've worked with. You start caring for the people, no matter what they have done, no matter what they do. You look at the individual, you look at the group, you care for them. So you are going to make them safe. You want them to feel safe and you, which means also that you are very vigilant with what you do with the self-regulation, with, you know, you touch on traumas. You, you, so you look also for colleagues locally who can help you. I've often worked with local, even students, you know, people who are still being trained, but being trained seriously who are students in psychology, who are students in being psychiatrists, and taking advice from the local colleagues who are on those disciplines to make sure that we respect, for instance, in Rwanda, we don't talk about traumas, we don't talk about what has happened in some in, in Cambodia. It's 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 beyond respectful. So you are going to work differently. I work extremely differently. And there was a shock at the beginning, the first time I worked in Cambodia, because it's nothing to do with the way I would work in Latin America or in Africa. And, and Africa is a huge continent. So even from one country to the next, very different cultures. Rwanda, Burundi are close to each other. I had to work very differently in those two cultures. And, and it's not culture in the, the whole sense. It's also because of what has happened recently and because of the political system now. So the culture is, is a mix of different things. So you have to listen a lot and with your heart, you know? Yeah, no, that's beautiful, Beatrice. Um, really speaking about ethics and- For listen. me, that's the most important. You know, when I was a university professor that was always my fight with my colleagues because I was always if there is one thing we need to teach is the ethics mm -hmm. is working on which means also working on our relationship with with violence if we are peace builders with peace with all of that that has been a constant work for me you know our representation of violence of what has happened of what it is 
an acknowledgement of who we are as humans. We are not separate, you know. Everything is part of us also. And I'm not saying that in, in the in the world sense. It's really part of our humanity and how, again, looking at the brain is 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 seeing, of course, it's always part of the culture. You, it's not abstract because the way the brain functions, there is, it's again, it's in connection with an environment. At the same time, biologically and, and in the nervous system, there are things that are very similar. We, have, we are more similar than we are different. Yeah, and then the last thing I'll say is what really came up when you were talking is reinforcing what you had said in a number of different ways we are not as peace builders there to do something to bring something we are there in a way to be with and we are part of that humanity and that social fabric and showing up as humans and learning and listening it's it's, it's a very powerful shift but it sounds simple, but it's a very powerful shift if there is going to be you know, transformation and peace building at an individual and collective level. And it's not easy because it's, it's accepting that your role is very modest, mm -hmm. important and modest. You're a space holder and facilitator. And being a healer has helped me a lot understanding that more, even more, because it's even more the case when you work one-on-one, -on -one, but it's the same with a group you are a space holder and facilitator. So you have to disappear. And the best compliment on, on, on one of the criteria, of course, it's not the only one, but is when people forget that you are here. And, and at the end, if it's a training, let's say, or a focus group or you know, an activity as a group, they, you know, if there is success, whatever that means, but they, they are at the end, they're like, oh, and we did that they did that they feel that they are the, they really see that and feel that they are the ones who did it because it's a truth well it's been wonderful spending this time with you beatrice same here always you always push off the buttons that made me so passionate <laughs> you know me. even in covid time i'm like <laughs> no 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 exactly no it's and I same you you make me want to your your passion makes me want to delve into it more and really pull these things apart to, to really grasp and try to understand so so thank you thank you and to be continued definitely thank you for joining us this week for the think peace podcast where peace crosses the mind please visit our website www.thinkpeacepodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.